Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, throughout my tropical fish hobby career, I've praised the concept of stability in my aquarium work. I've long valued that whole idea of stable environmental conditions, long-term management, and minimal disruption of my aquariums. And indeed, it's served me and my fishes pretty well. However, in the past couple of years, as I've relocated to a new home and, and a, doing, a, uh, a, doing temporary aquariums for some of my fishes while I'm renovating the new property... I began to notice how easily my fishes seem to take all this disruption from the construction. In fact, far better than I have. And in studying many of the natural habitats, which I find so compelling, it turns out that fishes have to deal with a significant amount of disruption as part of their life cycle. In fact, in some instances, it's not just something that the fishes have to deal with, it's something that they've evolved to work with, something they need. In nature, fishes will frequently migrate into and out of areas as the seasons change. Often this is because they're following food sources, shelter, or just some form of stability. Instinctive urges to feed, to reproduce, and flee predators compel fishes to move from environment to environment. And other fishes, like annual killifishes, which we talk about a lot around here, essentially require these disruptions, these seasonal disruptions, in order to complete their life cycle. Their reproductive strategy involves laying their eggs in the substrate, which provides the correct conditions to incubate as the pools that the fishes live in dry out. The eggs develop in the dry ground, awaiting the next rainy season to hatch and continue the cycle of life. The ability of fishes to deal with environmental disruption is a profound adaptation, and one which we as aquarists, with few exceptions like breeding annual killies, as I just mentioned, have likely not intentionally leveraged to our advantage over the decades of the modern aquarium hobby. Now, I think that while my stability obsession over the past few years has been good for my fishes, I believe that this may not be the very best way to keep many fishes in all instances. I think there's options which we can employ to do things better. I think we can manage our aquariums more realistically. I believe that our fishes can benefit from us offering some disruption or changes to their environment from time to time. And I believe that many of them are genetically or instinctively programmed to endure and to even benefit from such environmental changes as part of their life cycles. I base this on many well-known adaptations that the fishes have had to make to cope with the changes that regularly occur in their environments. I realize that this is somewhat contrarian from an aquarium standpoint to the long-accepted aquarium standard of stability in every way. And it's something I've had to revisit myself over the years. I mean, I've traditionally been the type of aquarist who adopts a sort of hands-off stance when it comes to messing with my tanks once they're up and running. I guess as a reefer, that's something that was drummed into my head early on. But, you know, I've since sort of started thinking about this. Now, I still tend to not mess with my systems all that much once they're up and running. Yet, when managing systems like, you know, the urban agapo tanks that I love so much, I've noticed interesting positives in the health of my fishes. However, when we consider the way nature functions when she impacts aquatic ecosystems, there is something there, I think, 
in the wild, many fishes are, you know, subjected to such environmental fluctuations and disruptions to their physical environment on an almost semi-regular basis that there's got to be something to it. They seem to do just fine. I think that any stress which fishes may accrue as a result of temporary disruptions is far, far different and less deleterious than, you know, continuous stresses, environmental, etc., endured by our fishes. That's a different thing. In fact, when you think about it, as hobbyists, we've embraced some aspects of this type of environmental manipulation with fish breeding techniques for many, many years. Lowering the water temperatures to mimic rainstorms for Corydoras, or exhaling into a test tube of water containing annual killifishes to add CO2 to stimulate hatching. Practices which represent uh, natural environmental changes, disruptions brought about by rapid short-term meteorological conditions in the wild. Now think about that for a minute. I would imagine that there's a lot of benefits to be realized by deconstructing and replicating the processes of disruption and change which nature you know, in parts to our fish's environments. We could probably gain a lot as hobbyists from simply studying and considering how fishes react to the environmental disruptions and changes that they face in nature. Think about the way fishes adapt their behaviors and strategies to feed in the wild. It might give us some interesting insights that we could apply to our aquarium work. For example, as we know by now, in nature, fishes spend a significant amount of their time and energy searching for food. On the Amazon floodplains, for example, the flood cycle of the rivers and the agapo are the dominant seasonal factor, and fish communities are found to fluctuate greatly over the year. During the inundation, when the heavy rains come and the rivers overflow, fishes migrate into floodplain forests to feed on insects, fruits, and seeds, among other things. Now, studies of these blackwater communities have showed that during these cycles, a greater diversity of fishes exists, you know, exists there. Kind of makes sense, right? Many species were found to be specialized feeders. Fish, detritus, and insects were the most important resources supporting the fish community in both high and low water seasons. But the proportion of fruits, invertebrates, and fish were raised, or excuse me, reduced during the low water season. So in other words, they adapt to the availability of different food sources at different times of the year by adjusting their dietary preferences. So are there some takeaways here for us fish geeks? Well, sure. Perhaps we could simply alter the stuff we feed our fishes at different times of the year. In other words, feed a correspondingly more frequent, more intensive diet of, I don't know, say worms, fruit flies, or daphnia, or whatever, in a period of time that corresponds with the wet season. And then perhaps reducing frequency, quantity, and variety of foods at other times, perhaps even doing a several week long hiatus or two to encourage them to forage on the bio cover and all the natural foods that you've encouraged to accumulate within your aquarium. That's one change or disruption that we could relatively easily create in the aquarium. I've done this a number of times over the years with tremendous success. It all revolves around how we set up our systems for this sort of operation. I've done some pretty extensive hobby level experiments with leaf litter only systems and the natural detritus, fungal growth, and biofilms that, you know, that they accumulate. And this has demonstrated that some fish can not only adjust their feeding preferences in our aquariums, but that they can thrive on various natural foods. I've even had spawning events, which I've shared with you before. Simply adjusting foods on a seasonal basis to mimic the changes which fishes encounter in the wild could possibly trigger some sort of physiological responses within their bodies, which may create, I don't know, greater vigor, better color, and perhaps even foster those spawning behaviors. And then there's that urban agapo idea, which we've been discussing a lot lately, lately. you know, the, the concept of recreating the seasonal wet dry cycle of some tropical environments in our aquariums is fundamentally different than anything we've played with before. Yeah, it's rather extreme, but it's a very dynamic process, but it's already given us some interesting insights into the wild habitats of our fishes and how they change over time. 
Disruption, in our case, isn't always about disrupting the aquarium and its function. It's also about the disruption of a prevailing hobby mindset, which suggests that nature is a pristine, orderly place and that our aquarium should reflect this. Sometimes shaking the status quo of aquarium religion is a good thing. It forces us to think and not to continuously misappropriate terms like, I don't know, natural in the hobby. The botanical style aquarium itself is an example of this disruption or counter disruption. You're like, huh? Well, think about this. We spend a lot of time trying to polish out things which we don't feel, uh, for largely aesthetic or philosophical reasons, which we don't feel belong in our aquariums. In the interest of management of the aquarium, we end up disrupting biological processes and systems by excessively removing stuff like detritus, biofilms, and fungal growths. Things are which not only essential parts of the ecosystem, they're food for somebody for a myriad of life forms throughout the biome of the aquarium. Accepting that the aquarium habitat evolves over time, if we, transformed by the unstoppable, you know, constant natural processes, if we let it happen, it works. The processes often result in aquarium habitats which look and function just like they do in nature. And I understand that not everybody can handle that. I admit, I feel a bit sorry for some of the people who can't make that mental shift to accept the fact that nature does her own thing and she'll lay down a patina of biofilm or whatever on our botanicals and gradually transform them into something quite a bit different than when we started. If we don't accept this process, we sadly get to miss out on nature guiding our tanks towards their ultimate beauty, perhaps better than we even envisioned when we started. For some people, it's really hard to accept this process, to let go of everything that they've known before in the hobby, to not disrupt what is occurring in their tanks, to wait while nature goes through her growing pains, decomposing, transforming, and yeah, evolving our you know, aquascapes from carefully planned art installations to living, breathing, functional microcosms. But what about all that decay, that patina of biofilm? It's okay. It's normal. It's natural. The presence of these things waxes and wanes to a certain extent, the product of a botanical bioload. Yet they're always there, as they are in natural habitats. And making the effort to understand and even appreciate their appearance is a sign that your aquarium is functioning as nature intended. And that's the biggest step in achieving what can only be called a form of, I don't know, aquatic enlightenment. The accumulation of materials dissolves, you know, substrate constituents, decomposing leaves and botanicals, bits of biofilms and fungal threads is fundamental to the ecology of our aquariums. I've said it a million times to the point where you want to pummel me because you're probably sick of me saying it. But it's part of this type of approach. It's fundamental. It's present in all natural aquatic systems. We just work with it instead of against it to not disrupt it. Instead of trying to sanitize, edit or otherwise redirect nature, we understand that it'll follow its own path, sometimes going through phases that we may not appreciate. And guess what? It never stops. And you shouldn't want it to. The ebb and flow of natural botanical style aquariums is much like a garden. You can and should perform regular maintenance, conducting water exchanges, filter media replacement, etc. like you do in any other tank. However, you need to conduct these maintenance sessions, not with the idea of, you know, this will take care of those biofilms, but with an attitude of this will continue to facilitate these ecological changes over time. Yeah, it requires a certain attitude and a willingness to look at nature as she actually is and to appreciate the beauty in the details of her processes, letting decomposing materials remain in the system to fuel the ecology. So on a practical, functional level, is there an issue in allowing these materials to accumulate? Of course not. We know that because our aquariums are essentially configured to use decomposing materials as the operating system. Those who try botanical style aquariums simply for the unique aesthetics will sadly never fully realize the benefits of creating an ecology around the botanicals. 
That's why it's so important to have an open mind and a desire to learn about developing an ecosystem, not just a cool looking tank. I think that in general, we get a bit too obsessed about avoiding any type of disruption in our aquariums. I'm also convinced that sometimes as hobbyists, we tend to get a bit, I don't know, well, overly concerned about the stuff that maybe non-hobbyists don't even understand. Or perhaps they do, probably more than we can comprehend, and they'll occasionally come up with some pearls of wisdom that blow us away. I've got a case in point. Uh, not long ago, I recall walking into my office one early morning, and I immediately was like, oh shit. Somebody apparently left uh, one of the computers in the office on all night, and the room was really brightly illuminated. And I'm like, no biggie, except that, you know, the fact that one of my aquariums, this little agape, uh, agarape-inspired leaf litter tank, resided there too and i recently added some cool wild fishes to the tank and acclimated them very carefully after you know quarantine and so forth and then this had to happen and you know where i'm going with this a typical fish geek i'm like oh my god the fishes didn't get any dark period they're seriously stressed now you will say that this wouldn't bother you i'm sure you will but you're totally lying it would bother the shit out of you too i know it would because you're a fish geek it's part of what we do of course, I relayed this concern to my wife later in the day when we were touched base and, you know, asked each other how our days are going and, you know, her, her very important uh, profession, there's more important things going on than, than me going, oh, I left, you know, there's a light on in my, in my aquarium uh, in my office, uh, you know, so it's kind of funny what we consider important or stressful. But of course, my wife, who's not a fish geek yet ever the pragmatist noted, you know, it's not that big a deal, Scott. Sometimes unexpected things happen in the Amazon. I'm like, whoa, she was onto something there. Yeah. That was right. And it's not just me who freaks out about stuff like this. I know for a fact. It's a, it's a fish geek thing. I, you all do. I think that as hobbyists, we tend to get caught up in every little minute detail of the little worlds that we've created for our fishes so much that we often forget the one underlying truth about them. They're living creatures which have evolved over eons to adapt to and deal with changes in their environment, big and small, or even insignificant, like an excessive amount of light one evening. They can handle disruption. Hell, they're cat caught in wild streams, sent to a wholesaler, shipped somewhere else around the world, then end up at your local fish store and finally in your you know, home or office. They manage to live. And with my fish, I mean, there must have been some natural precedent for this whole bright light thing. Some atmospheric phenomenon or combination of phenomenon which rendered the night sky inordinately, you know, inordinately bright one evening at some point in the long history of the world. And guess what? All the fishes lived, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Disruption can be upsetting, but likely more upsetting to us than to our fishes. They do what they've always done. They find a way to adapt, to thrive, and even spawn. Again, one only need think of the temperature drop and large water exchanges, which hobbyists execute to breed fishes like quarries and all those other fishes. It triggers something in the fishes, doesn't it? These disruptions don't harm them, right? Now, sure, constant disruption is a recipe for stress, which is a condition that allows for diseases to arise. I totally get that. And a major environmental fluctuation, like a sudden decrease in dissolved oxygen or a huge drop in pH, can be fatal. However, the occasional disruptive event, like tearing up the hardscape, you know, when you're netting something out, removing plants, adding substrate, sending detritus into suspension, knocking rocks over or whatever, is, in my humble opinion, probably actually rather more beneficial for the fishes in the grand scheme of things than it is detrimental. It's surprisingly natural, actually. I mean, it keeps them reacting to stimuli the way they have for untold millennia, right? You don't want to atrophy that. I think so. I think that's, that's true. So 
really, the next time you're a bit concerned because you felt that your 50% water exchange was a bit too aggressive or whatever, just consider what happens in the wild streams, the ponds, and the forests in nature where fishes have lived and thrive for eons. And realize that in many cases, the fishes will cope with the change just like they would in any other challenge in nature. Your intentions are good. Your ideas are sound. Stay brave. Stay thoughtful. Stay curious. Stay calm. Stay diligent. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tin and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.